Well, I'm so grateful for this opportunity to preach the Word of God. Um, I'm grateful for the reason that in preaching the Word, there is a real motivation to dig into it. And I, I will confess that um, probably through the last few months, my digging into the Word has not... Uh, not been as deep as it should be and not been as consistent as it should be. But the burden of bringing the Word of God to God's people and uh, the burden of bringing it correctly is uh, it's a great motivator. And I just want you to know before I start that the Lord has used uh, the book of Zephaniah to, uh, to really... Uh, I forget what the words I use with Rhonda, um, knock me around um, to really tune me up a bit or a lot. And I trust that this message uh, will, I, I hope that it reaches your heart in the way that it has reached mine and that it will continue to do so, not only today as we hear it, but as the Lord brings this word back to us again and again. Um, I want to start just by, even though we are going to be doing sort of a survey of the book, I'd like to read a little section from Zephaniah chapter 2. So if you want to turn to Zephaniah, it is uh, right after the book of Habakkuk, which we've been studying for the last few weeks here with Pastor Kevin. Um, Zephaniah chapter 2. And as I read it, I want you to think also of the passage that Clay just read from Second from Second Peter chapter three, talking about the day of the Lord, and note that we are actually addressing the uh, the same application here in this passage. Normally, the application comes at the end of the message. I mean, that's the typical way of doing it, but I want to lay this out right away, so that as we go through. Uh, we are mindful of what the Lord's design is in presenting to us the desolation and then the restoration that is laid out in the book of Zephaniah. So let's uh, look at chapter 2, verse 1, and I'll read the first few verses here. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Now the message we heard from Second Peter chapter 3 was, the Lord is going to destroy everything. Uh, the elements are going to melt with the fervent heat. Everything, as Clay's translation said, everything that makes up the universe will be destroyed. This is what's coming. In light of that fact, in light of the coming judgment of God upon the world because of sin, what manner of people ought his people to be? How, how should we then live? Now, if you observe 
the railing of the nations that is happening right now, and the exaltation of human pride against God's design in every way, both in national leadership, in, um, in the vindicating and um, almost the honoring of, uh, of, of false religion that is dedicated to the destruction of both Christianity and the nation of Israel. When we look at uh, the confusion over even the nature of what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, what is male and what is female, you can see that God's judgment hangs heavy over the world as it has in the past when the world has progressed or regressed to this state. And the question is, how should we then live? And the answer is, God calls us to hum- humility. God calls us to holiness. God calls us to repentance. You see, and also I wanted to read that passage in Second Peter because it connects the Testaments for us. You have the phrase, the day of the Lord, used throughout the Old Testament, and it has many, many instances and reoccurrences throughout the history of Israel. The day of the Lord was a specific time when God would bear his arm, lay bare his arm, and he would come down and intervene in human affairs to judge his people, to correct them, to bring them to repentance, and to vindicate his own name. That's what the day of the Lord is. But there are, while there are many days of the Lord, and I believe there are still days of the Lord, I believe September 11th was a day of the Lord to call a rogue nation to repentance. There are many days of the Lord, but there is a coming great day of the Lord. Zephaniah addresses both an immediate day of the Lord, which is the same day of the Lord that uh, Pastor Kevin uh, taught us about in Habakkuk, Habakkuk, when when, uh, Babylon, the Chaldeans, would come and besiege Israel for 70 years. That's the day that uh, Zephaniah has in mind as well, but he also takes us to the great day of the Lord. And in fact, at least half to three quarters of his message deals with this coming day of the Lord that Peter talks about. So we know that it's not just a New Testament thing. We know that it is not just an Israel thing. It is a global event that affects everyone. It affects the unbelievers in the world. It affects the people of God in Israel. It affects the people of God, his church. And it is coming, and this is our fair warning that we need to prepare, and we need to be right with God. So, as I've said already, there are two main focuses in this book. There is the desolation that comes with the wrath of God. And there is, a rede- re- there is the restoration that comes with the mercy of God. In between here, we have a call to repent. And we have a picture of regeneration. And there is no other way. There is no other way to go from desolation of a, of a world that is outside of the favor of God to restoration except through repentance and through regeneration. There is no way for man to find, him, for, for man to find his way back to God 
The way is that God finds man and that God draws him and God gives him this gift of repentance so that he will indeed um, receive the mercy and favor and grace that comes only from the Lord. All right, so we're going to just go through the text. I plan to, I plan to get through the book. And if you know how I preach, I'm not going to make any promises about how long this is going to be, but just, just pray that we'll be able to keep it within bounds. Um, let's, uh, so first of all, um, keep in mind that as we go through this passage, we have alternate um, statements of God's judgment and of God's mercy. Some of them are focused locally on Judah, the nation of Judah, and even more so on the city of Jerusalem. And yet there is, a, you can see pretty clearly when God addresses all of mankind. And when we say all of mankind, we're talking about all of mankind to the very end of history. So this is, uh, I think we're going, to, we're going to see ourselves, we're going to be able to place the modern day church within this book. And we're going to, the, the Lord's uh, instructions for us, even in this day, are going to be very clear. All right, let's begin just reading. And uh, I'll read the first verse, and then we'll use that as, a, as an introduction. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now that seems just like a long list of names, but there's things we can glean through this. Number one, the name Zechariah, or Zephaniah, pardon me, means... The Lord has hidden. The Lord has hidden. And I'll just let that hang there for right now. Uh, but that is, that is an important element in the text as we go forward. Secondly, we can notice here that this, this, uh, the, all of the generations of Zephaniah are given. And the last of the generations, or I guess the first, depending which way you go, is Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was one of the great kings of Israel. In, in fact, probably the greatest king. There was a great revival under King Hezekiah. So we know that Zephaniah is apparently of, a ro of royal lineage. And he also is of that family line where perhaps the, uh, the teaching of the father has been passed down to the son and so on and so on and so on. And perhaps there has been some grace of God that has preserved his word and preserved this humility from generation to generation. Um, also, just as a way of introduction here, this is one of what are called the, pre, the, uh, the pre-exilic minor prophets. Some of the minor prophets, and we call them minor because they're short, not because they're unimportant, but some of the minor prophets actually were written uh, uh, before the exile of Israel into uh, Babylon. And of course, Habakkuk was one of those. Isaiah was another one of those. Jeremiah was another one. They prophesied this coming invasion, but it, they wrote before it. Then there were some that were written during the period of exile. Um, and uh, let me just think if I can think of, oh, I think Ezekiel is not a minor prophet, but it is an example of a prophet that would, would have been written during the period of exile. 
Um, and then there are the post-exilic prophets that, uh, that uh, are afterward. Um, and those would be Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now, Zephaniah was not the last of the pre-exilic prophets that was written, but it is last in the canon of Scripture. Uh, it, it comes after Habakkuk, but Zephaniah was actually written before Habakkuk. And I think perhaps the reason for that was that uh, Habakkuk's prophecy uh, was very specific and dealt more with uh, specifics of the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, and so on, was sort of an immediate message. That, that's the one that sort of takes the, the priority in the book of Habakkuk, and then it alludes to the day of the Lord at the end, whereas Zephaniah seems to have more of a message for all mankind, uh, for the end of history, that is always relevant because God's call is always for people to repent. So um, those are the things that we can learn just from the, uh, the introduction. One more thing that's not in the text, but it's in history, is when the time when Zephaniah wrote. It was more, uh, most likely between the era of uh, the years of 640 B.C. and 621 B.C. 621 is a very significant year because that is the year that King Josiah, who came to reign as a very young boy at eight years of age, but King Josiah was the last good king of Judah. Uh, well, he won't be the last. Jesus Christ will be the last, is the last good king, the great king. But uh, Josiah in the year 621, uh, read before the people the word of the Lord. And there was a massive revival. There was a massive reformation in the kingdom. And this is significant because Zephaniah's word, Zephaniah's warning, it seems that Zephaniah's warning was to some degree at least heeded. And then God gave grace for one more revival before he had to come again in judgment. So there was an immediate repentance, but it was not a lasting repentance. All right, let's continue now uh, with our text. And we'll start with this very blunt and very searing opening statement. Talk about getting our attention right at the beginning. Listen to this. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of heaven and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Is there anything that is unclear about that statement? This is complete and utter destruction that the Lord is talking about. And I want you to notice the source of the complete and utter, utter destruction. Okay, we're going to be looking at desolation for a while. The first long part of this whole book is desolation. I want us to look at the source of this desolation. I will utterly sweep away everything. Who is speaking? The Lord. The passage we read in 2 Peter says the, the word, that people deliberately forget that everything exists came by the word of the Lord and by his power. 
And they also forget that everything was also destroyed by the Lord in the flood and that everything will be destroyed in the end by that same power. God is the one who brings life. God is the one who destroys and judges. So this is serious. This is coming from the creator of the universe, the one who uh, brought everything out of nothing. He has the power and he is making the statement here that he will again bring everything to nothing. So the scope of the desolation, the source is God. The scope is universal. There is going to be a time when God's wrath will be poured out in such a way upon this earth that it is left bare and that it is left, it is left desolate. Well, there's a source, which is God. There's a scope, which is everything in the entire universe. There is a center of this desolation, which is Jerusalem and Judah. Verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests, idolatrous priests along with the priests, who, those who bow down on the roofs and to the host of heaven, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following him, the, following the Lord, those who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Now, we've just had this great statement of global judgment, but you can see that the focus now narrows in to Jerusalem and Judah. Judah. And now we have to take ourselves out of the ultimate mindset and come down into the immediate mindset where the people, God is speaking directly to the people through his prophet. And he's speaking directly to their system of worship and their priests and so on. He's saying, this is what is coming upon you, specifically soon, Judah, Jerusalem. Because you are my people, my wrath, my judgment is going to, and, and my, my judgment is going to begin in my house with my people. You're, you have always been my example to the nations. You know, if I could choose to be of any nation of the world, I don't think I would choose to be an Israelite. I mean, there's many blessings. Like Paul says, what advantage is there to being a Jew? Well, there's many, there, there's in every way. I mean, you're entrusted with the oracles of God. You know, you, God has given you prophets. God has given you um, the, uh, the word of God. What a great blessing. But also, God has also placed upon Israel his own name, his own integrity, and has called Israel to be a light to the nations. So when Israel is not a light to the nations, and when Israel is a bad representation of him, Israel is punished, and Israel is corrected, and Israel is brought again to repentance. Um, well, anyway, and you can see that throughout history, up to very recently. You can even see it uh, with the rise of anti-Semitism now in the world. We saw it in World War II. We see it in the constant harassment of the, the nation of Israel uh, as if it has no right to exist and all of its enemies conspiring against. All right. Now, in this center of the desolation, 
this particular time, this kind of example for all nations. There are sins. There are sins of this desolation. Let's look at what they are. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. What's that? What's that sin? Idolatry. Baal was a false god, a fertility god that the people worshipped. It was a pagan god. And out of some pragmatic reason, often maybe seeing their neighbors prosper, um, Israel had various bouts where they would actually worship their gods. And one of them was Baal. He says, I'll cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests who bow down the roofs and to the host of heaven. So there are priests who not only do they bow down, bow down to the Lord, but they bow down to the stars of heaven. And not only do they worship in the temple where they are to worship, but they go on their roofs where they are not to worship. And so there is this mixture of... of uh, a semblance of true worship together with all of these pagan practices. That is spiritual adultery. It's cheating on God. It's swearing allegiance or, or at least professing allegiance to God, but going off and on the side seeking out uh, an adulterous affair with another God. Um, and then it says, uh, another example of this, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear to Milcom. I, I dare say that uh, in our age, with all of what passes itself off as Christianity, we do have idolatrous priests. We do have those who swear by the Lord and, and yet by Milcom. We have those that worship God and mammon um, among the leaders of the people, among those who profess to be um, not necessarily priests of God, but representatives of God. And then the last uh, sin that's kind of listed in this little passage is those who have turned back from following the Lord. That's, that's apostasy. That is uh, turning away, turning your back from the Lord as, it, as if you want... Uh, nothing to do with him. The Bible talks about in the last days there will be a great falling away. That's apostasy, apostasia. It's falling away or turning away from the Lord. And finally, there's complacency who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Who go about their daily lives knowing enough about God to know that he is real, that he is personal, that he is engaged, that he is holy, that he is righteous, and yet will not seek his counsel, will not open his word, and will not heed his word. So, this is, uh, of course, kind of focused in on Israel, and especially on Judah and Jerusalem. And yet there's application here for anyone who calls himself by God's name. God's standard of holiness has not changed. His attitude to adultery, spiritual adultery, toward idolatry, toward complacency, toward idolatry has not changed. 
And wherever this occurs, God has to correct. And God will correct. God is coming for a bride that is pure. And he has already purified the bride of Christ by the blood of the Lamb, but he continues to purify and sanctify us through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's, uh, let's get back to our text here. Continuing as God rebukes Judah. Be silent before the Lord. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. Now this speaks of the day of the Lord that is very near. Not the great day of the Lord, but there is a day of the Lord coming. There is a feast coming. And the feast, the invited guests to this feast are the Babylonians or the Chaldeans. They're going to come and they're going to ravage uh, Judah. They're going to take captive Judah. The best of, of Judah and of Jerusalem are going to be taken captive into Babylon. It says, On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. So there's corrupt officials. They are part of the sacrifice. They are part of what is going to be sacrificed in this coming feast of the Lord. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. Who are people who leap over the threshold? A strange phrase indeed. Well, do you recall the, uh, from one of, the, one of the, le- the books of Samuel, I think it's 1 Samuel, it is, uh, when the, uh, the God or the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. And it is brought in, they bring it in, and they put it beside their god, Dagon, in their temple. And lo and behold, in the morning they come, they find, they come and they find Dagon, and his, uh, he, he's face down, he's fallen down um, on the threshold, and what is it, his feet? or Anyway, it's broken. Okay, the, and so the Philistines, after that, they they developed a a superstition where they would not step on the threshold because that's where Dagon had fallen, okay? So there's there's an allusion here to this superstition, this pagan superstition had been somehow absorbed by God's people. So there's religious superstition, there's corrupt officials. It says, look, it says also this, and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud... I would uh, say that these are religious swindlers. Um, There were money changers in the temple in the day of our Lord Jesus. And he came into that temple and he chased them out with a whip made of cords. He scourged them and he said, Is not my father's house a a house of prayer? But you have made it into a a den of thieves or as a, as a, place of commerce. It says, on that day, declares the Lord, and, rem- and you can tell that this is specifically for, for Judah and for Jerusalem because it mentions specific places. A cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. So 
This is God's way of telling in, in not terribly specific terms, but that there is judgment. Your whole way of life is going to be destroyed. Um, and I'm going to deal with these specific sins. Now, all of the sins thus far mentioned are pretty blatant and pretty obvious. There's corruption at high levels. There's swindling. There's um, superstition. And all of these, it seems to be sort of a, a national corporate kind of judgment that God is talking about here. But God is more concerned with the individual heart than he is with nations. And because nations, of course, are made of individuals. And God's kingdom is made of individuals who are called by him into his fold. So listen, the tone changes here now. The emphasis changes. Well, you can say, well, I'm not one of the corrupt officials. I'm not a swindler. I'm not violent. I don't jump over the threshold. I'm not, I'm not like that. Listen to what comes next. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. Where do you use a lamp? Do you use it outside where everything is exposed in broad daylight? Or do you use it to see into dark corners? I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, who say in their hearts, the Lord will do no good, nor will he do ill. So the emphasis has shifted. God is looking deep inside now. If you remember the prophecy of Ezekiel, there are great monstrous, idolatrous things going out in the temple court, but God takes Ezekiel down and he, to tunnel in underneath the court and inside underneath, underneath the temple, there is a chamber where all of these idols are set up and people are worshiping these idols in secret. God sees our hearts. God sees the hearts of his people. God sees the complacency. And even though there might be words of praise and words of worship on their lips, in their hearts they're saying, God cannot do, God will not do ill and he will not do good. God is irrelevant. God doesn't matter. I'm going to carry on with my life as though he does not exist. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 5, we are, we are uh, reminded of what the world is going to be like in the last days. And I'll just take us there for a moment. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having, here's the key phrase here, having the appearance of godliness, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Do we truly believe? Do we function as though we believe? That God does do good. That God does bring 
justice and judgment, that he uses evil people like the Assyrians and the Babylonians to do his will. Do we see God in all of these things? Or do we just say, as the, as the uh, scoffers did, that Second Peter talked about, um, all things continue as they always have, since the fathers fell asleep. Where is this coming, you promise? Where, where is this God? And there is, a, there is an indifference, there is a complacency. Well, you might think, this is kind of in the passage that is narrowed into Judah and Jerusalem. Maybe this is sort of a, you know, a 6th century BC um, idolatry kind of thing. And I can kind of use my eschatological bias to wiggle out and say, well, this is for the Jews, not for me. You can't do that. Listen to what comes next. The great day of the Lord is near. Not just the day of the Lord, the great day of the Lord is near. And hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries out aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities, not just one city now, against the fortified cities, and against the lofty battlements. Again, we come to the, the scope of God's judgment here. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. This is the great day of the Lord. This is a universal judgment. God not only judges his people to whom he has specifically given special revelation through the word of God and through the son of God, Jesus Christ. But God judges the entire world that has at the very least, general revelation, at the very least, the knowledge of God, his eternal and power, power and Godhead are clearly seen in the things that are made. So God has reserved judgment for all of mankind because all of mankind have sinned against the Lord. All of mankind by not recognizing the holiness and the sovereignty of God has sinned against him. And therefore, it says, they shall walk like the blind. What an interesting phrase that is. They shall walk like the blind. You know, if I kept walking, I would, I would tumble to my own destruction. And that's exactly what it is like for the world they will not know when the destruction comes upon them. But this is God's doing. God blinds people. Isaiah talks about God giving the, the uh, children of Israel a spirit of stupor that prevents them from uh, turning and repenting. God does this as a part of his judgment, but he is going to do this not only on the people of Israel, but upon the whole world. Uh, if you look for a moment, if you turned with me to 
Timothy, turn a couple of pages back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. It's talking about the man of sin, the Antichrist. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan and all power and false signs and wonders. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. That's walking blind. We have people who believe that you can wake up one morning and decide, I don't think I'm a man, I think I'm a woman. And we have a media establishment that is actually promoting that as truth. And that if you contradict that, you're a liar, you're a bigot, you're evil. And so you've got evil and good reversed. You've got order and chaos confused. Everything is confused. We walk like we're blind. The things that should be obvious, things that are wholesome and pure, are considered hateful and, and uh, base. Whereas things that are perverse in the eyes of God and nature are considered pure. God will send a strong delusion. You think Antichrist, you think the man of sin would have the power he does if God had not allowed people to be deceived by him as part of his judgment? Well, this is part of the great day of the Lord. There are many passages in Scripture that speak of the great day of the Lord. We've looked at the one from Peter. There's one in the book of Joel, another passage. And I'll just read a little bit of that so you can get more of a, a sense of what's coming here. Uh, Joel is uh, toward the end of the Old Testament. It's one of the minor prophets as well. And um, here... It's actually the earliest of the minor prophets. It's taking me a while to find it here. Hosea, Joel. So if you look with me in chapter 3, verses 9 through 14. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war or prepare for war. Stir up the mighty men. Lead all the men. Let all the men draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come. So this is a battle. It's a, a battle that is going to involve everyone. Men, strong and weak. Essentially, even people who are not warlike, who have no weapons, make your instruments of peace into instruments of war and come together. Hasten and come, you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring your, down your warriors, O Lord. 
and let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in and tread, for the winepress is full, and vats overflow, and their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of the decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision, and the sun and the moon are darkened, and the dark stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. The Lord is a ref but but the Lord is a refuge to his people and a stronghold to the people of Israel. So there is this coming day of the Lord. Now we'll get to the refuge part in a moment. But let's finish. Let's just follow along in our passage. I left off at verse 17 in, uh, in, Habak or in uh, Zephaniah. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor, nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. Bill, Bill uh, Clinton famously said, it's the economy, stupid. It's not the economy. It's the Lord, stupid. That's what we need to be concerned about. A holy God who's looking down on his people, his creation, You, you, you can't be running to your silver and your gold. I mean, there's lots of talk about people buying gold because it's the only thing that's going to hold its value in the coming whatever. Your silver and your gold will not save you. What or who will save you? Well, the only one who can save you is the one who is bringing the judgment. You need to run to him, not from him. He is your only hope. If the, in the fire of his jealousy all the earth shall be consumed, for a full and sudden end will be made of all the inhabitants of the earth. Well, surely there's got to be some hope here. Surely there has got to be a way to avoid this coming judgment. And here's where we get to the passage we began with. God's call to repentance, which is the purpose of these statements of judgment. He lets us know ahead of time so we can repent ahead of time. Gather together. Yes, gather together, O shameless nation. Let's put Judah in there, the shameless nation. Let's put ourselves in there. Let's put the church in there. Not the church as the bride of Christ, the pure bride of Christ, but the church as what is visibly seen as the church that is made up, as we understand it, of wheat and tares. God has not yet done that final winnowing. The kingdom grows, and we don't see the true nature of the kingdom, but God does. Gather together, yes, gather together, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect before the day passes like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, 
who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek him before the decree takes place. Even though there is this decree of utter destruction, God is offering the hope that says, seek me in the hope that I will hide you when calamity comes. Zephaniah's name means the Lord has hidden. And I believe this is a hint, or this is a, this is a way of God communicating to his people. Try me on this. I am a God who responds to the repentant heart. I am a God who warns his people, who loves his people. A loving and forgiving and merciful God. Now look here at all of what's going to happen to Israel's, to Judah's neighbors. The assumption here is that Israel, or that Judah, pardon me, is going to repent. Gaza shall be deserted and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon and Ekron shall be uprooted. These are the, the nations that surround Israel. They've changed names, but they're still there. And they still act the same as they always have. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nations of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. And I will destroy you until no, ha- no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. So all of these um, proud, arrogant nations that want to stamp out the... Jerusalem, stamp out the presence of God in Jerusalem. This is what they want to do. They might leave that dome there, the Dome of the Rock and that Mosque of Omar. They, but they want, to, they want all trace of the one true God and of his people that he has established in that city. He wants, they want them removed. What does it say here? The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah. So here is God saying, look, I'm calling you to repentance. I'm going to judge your neighbors, your enemies. And I'm going to give these lands back to you. But I'm not going to give it wholesale to everyone who who is now in this nation. I'm going to give it to the remnant. I'm going to give it to those who remain after this winnowing that's coming, after the judgment that's coming. Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 11. uh, Verses 1 to 6. Actually, the whole chapter does, but we don't have time. Listen to this. I ask then, has God rejected his people? And the previous context is talking about Israel. By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now who is in view here? Is it the church? Well, in, in some sense, yes. But he's still carrying on, having discussed the plight of Israel in the previous two, three chapters. Has God rejected his people? 
God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. That means whom he loved ahead of time. Not the people that he knew what, what they would do. The people that he knew ahead of time. Do you not know that the scripture said of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is, my God, what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would not no longer be grace. So there is a sense in which the remnant applies to everyone who is grafted into Israel and is allowed to come into these spiritual blessings through faith in Jesus Christ. But God is reserving for himself people within his covenant nation of Israel that are going to be godly people. And he is going to honor that covenant Paul goes on to say how, well, I don't have time, so we'll, we'll keep going here. The seacoast shall be the possession, I'm in verse 7 of chapter 2 here, the remnant of the house of Judah, um, on which they shall graze, in the, in the, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. So there's a picture of safety, of peace in Judah. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people. Remember, God's people are not, oftentimes they're kind of deserving of these taunts. They do bad things. They fall into idolatry. They're hypocritical. We've heard all about that. And yet, when people taunt them and when people mock them, God does not take that lightly. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom, basically nothing left, and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. I believe Cush is like Ethiopia. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Remember, Assyria was the rod of God to, to God had given them power to uh, discipline Israel, and then God then promised to destroy Assyria. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in their capital. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation shall be on the threshold for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair of wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. This is God's wrath against the enemies of his people. Now, I sat with a pastor not long ago and we started talking about Romans. And we talked about Romans 11. 
and about whether God had a, a plan, whether, whether Israel was still in God's plan. And he said a statement that shocked me. He says, I've got, I've got no use for the Jews. That's uh, from a pastor. And there is a stream of thinking that is, it's in evangelical churches as well. It kind of says that God is done with Israel. I would challenge you to read carefully Romans 9, 10, and 11. Read through passages like Zephaniah and see whether that covenant is null and void or whether God intends, in spite of the wickedness and recalcitrance of his people, that he intends to honor his own name in his own city amongst his own people. Yes, we are Christ's kingdom. But there is an eternal city with God's name on it that, where he will be vindicated as well. Those are my thoughts on this. Others have other opinions. All right. Now we have, I'm sorry this is a, a long message, but we'll get through very shortly. Judgment on Jerusalem and the nations. Chapter 3. Again, this is repeating some of the things, so we'll go through quickly. This is now talking to Jerusalem. Woe to her who is a rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials in re- within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. Now listen to this next phrase because it doesn't seem to fit. The Lord within her is righteous. It talks about the officials within her. The officials within her are roaring lions. There's all this wickedness within this city, this rebellious city. Yet it says the Lord within her is righteous. God has not deserted his city. God is not giving up on his city. He is righteous. And let me remind you that there is a period of history spanning about 30 years when the Lord dwelt within her, when the Lord dwelt within the city of Jerusalem, where the Lord preached there, where he showed forth his justice each dawn and did not fail. He fulfilled everything the Father commanded him to do. What was the response, by and large? The end of verse 5, but the unjust knows no shame. In fact, they crucified the very God that was within her, the very, the very Lord, the anointed one. God speaks again to Judah. I have cut off the nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. So he's talking, this is what I have done. This is what I have done for you, my people. I have cut off nations. I have made them desolate. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. 
then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise to seize the prey, for my decision to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. By the way, Israel, of course, or Jerusalem, was completely demolished and destroyed in 70 AD. Um, Wait for me. That was one instance of this. But there is going to be a great gathering of all nations. The Battle of Armageddon, where the Christ himself will defeat the armies of the world with the word of his mouth. This is a, a hint that this is what's coming. We have to move on to to the hope that is offered here. Now at this same time, when there's this great battle, and when there's this coming of the Lord, there is something else that will occur. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them that call upon the name of the Lord, all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds of which you have rebelled against me. For I will remove from your midst your proud, your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. So is there, there is, there is a, a purging coming that involves all of these nations descending. The proud and lofty ones are going to be removed. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and, and lowly, and they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. And those that are left in Israel, this remnant, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Now, people might try to twist that and say, well, that is Israel. That's the nation of Israel as it exists. Not so. They have to build walls just to keep from being utterly destroyed. And their whole intelligence... It, folk, it, it revolves and it relies upon deceit, but this people will speak no lies. This is a transformed people that we're talking about. This refers to something wonderful that God is going to do on the day of judgment. There is also a day of gathering, a day of blessing, a day of restoration. Let's read about Israel's joy and restoration. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgment against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Now, I believe this is Indeed, a picture of the coming of the Lord to his people, the return of Christ. Now, 
Is he returning with the saints that have already been caught up with him? I'm not going to elaborate on that. But what I do know is that with the coming of Christ, there is a massive outcry. There is a mourning and a recognition among God's people that this is the one whom we have pierced. This is God's anointed one whom we crucified. And there is mourning, but according to, Zech to Zeph Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 12, there is a mourning, but there is relief for the mourning that God will bring at that time. First of all, um, Romans 11, verses 25 to 27. Just let me read this. Lest you be wise, Paul is speaking to Gentiles here. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this, this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them and when I take away their sins. Now, does this apply to everyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus? Absolutely. But God's word for his people in another of the minor prophets, Zechariah um, 10 or 12 verses 10 to 13, 10 to 13 verse 1 um, I'll just read this. And I will pour on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. Pardon me, look on him whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, uh, on that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning of Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the, each family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left each by itself and their wives by themselves. So what does it say here in, in our text? The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. This is God in the midst of his people. His people are seeing him whom they have pierced and they are mourning. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. I he will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival. I'm going to gather the people who mourn so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Now back to Zechariah, next verse. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So this is the remnant after all of God's judgment is done. When Jesus returns, this is his way of vindicating the people whom he has purchased along with every person in this world who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he is giving out this special dispensation of grace at his return for his own people whom he has promised that he will 
deliver. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together. Why did God bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Why did he bring them out? The answer is in Deuteronomy chapter 6. I brought you out so I could bring you in. This is a redeeming, restoring God. And this is the gospel, that God calls us out of darkness into light. He calls us out of slavery into freedom. He calls us through repentance and faith. I think I missed an, an important part here. God, um, please go back with me because this is, I, I can't overlook this. Verse 9 in chapter, chapter 3. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a, a pure speech so that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. You realize what this is? James tell, or the, the word of God tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's our heart. Scripture tells us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So nobody can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. People speak out of the abundance of the heart, so their tongue and their heart are connected. What does it say? I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. In order for them to, God to change their speech, he's got to change their heart. And all of them, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. That's grace. That is grace. We would not call upon the name of the Lord unless the Lord gave us lips to call upon the name of the Lord, unless he changed our heart, unless he took out our heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh. I will deal with your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among the people of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. What a blessing it is. What a wonderful truth it is that God redeems wicked, sinful people and restores them and gives them repentant hearts. Can you imagine, after all that we have done to the Lord, after all that Israel has done to the Lord, that this is God's attitude toward us in the end? Just let me read this again. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. God is going to sing with joy over his redeemed people who do not deserve to be redeemed. But he has given us the gift of repentance. He's given us the gift of faith. He's given us tongues of pure speech to worship him. Let's pray. 
Lord, I pray that what remains in our hearts and minds out of this message would be those words that are protected and guarded by the Spirit of God. And I pray that anything that is speculative would be discarded as such, but that your truth would remain in us. Thank you for warning us and warning the world of the judgment that is coming. Thank you for reminding us of what kind of people we ought to be, a people humble and lowly, a people who seek you, Lord. Let us seek you during this time of fear in the world. We thank you that you will rejoice over your children with singing. And Lord, that the day of the Lord is for us a day of refuge. We pray for your continued mercy upon the world, that you would give more time for the gospel to be proclaimed, for the message of judgment and redemption through Jesus Christ to go out so that there may be more to rejoice in you and that you will rejoice over your people. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, um, we're dismissed for our supper.